you've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about helping you to decide what to watch tonight. Let's get into Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Here we have Ethan Hunt and his spy team going after two parts of a key that, when combined, will help them destroy a sentient AI called the Entity that has spooked the world's intelligence services. Andrew, since you literally saw this yesterday night, yep. what was your first feeling or thought when the movie ended? I really liked it, but I felt like the Mission Impossible movies, starting with 4, 5, and 6, I felt like they honestly just got better. This one, I'm not quite sure if it's better than Fallout. I don't think it is, but it was still really good. Ooh. That's a valid opinion. Because I didn't like 3. People seem to love 3. If you take Julia out of 3, then I don't like 3 at all. All right. They definitely were getting better, and I do feel like this one misstepped a little. There's a huge, huge elephant in the room, because the bad guy is artificial intelligence. I get it. It's the IMF versus math, which has kind of been their whole deal every movie, right? Like, it's supposed to be impossible, and they still pull it off. When I first heard it was AI, I thought, well, a lot of techno thrillers from the early to mid-90s, Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan movies... Those get very brainy, and you have scenes where Jack Ryan, the CIA analyst, is poring over satellite photos and looking at dossiers. But they work. They're great scenes. They help move the plot along, and it's cool to see our hero use his brain. I think there's a way you could do it where it can come off as smart and engaging. But yeah, I don't quite think this movie did that. I will go on record as I think it's going to age really well. I don't think it's going to end up being campy in the end. It's probably going to be just exactly how we all go out. (laughs) You mean because in 10 years when robots walk the earth and every human has died, they'll be watching this movie chuckling? Yeah, they'll be like, (laughs) like they could beat math. (laughs) Uh, The first thing I thought exiting the film was this did not need to be a two-parter. There was enough material, I would have preferred just two separate villain stories using the subplots. I don't need this AI thing to stretch into another film, because they didn't do enough to really make me care about the bad guy. I'm surprised Solomon Lane from 5 and 6, I thought he was just useful in 5, but I didn't need to see him again. And then when they did in Fallout, and he was great, a great part of it, and surprised me, it was a nice addition to that film. But they didn't go, okay, Rogue Nation is part one. And then in part two, you're going to face the same baddie again. Everybody get excited. I don't want AI in the next movie. But we're stuck with it because it's a part one. It is a part one, yeah. Fallout and Rogue Nation did a really good job disguising it that it was a part one, part two. When McQuarrie wrote five... He didn't go into it going, oh, this is going to be a two-parter. You'll see Lane again. It just happened organically. It's better that way. It also helps that it's a human villain and not AI. Not (laughs) (laughs) auto-tuning. It's this weird juxtaposition between I want the AI to have, I don't know if I'm going to say personality, but just more of a 
backstory or an idea of what it wants. But then the more you do that, the more you humanize it, which I don't want that at all. And when he talks in Benji's voice, I wasn't going for that. Might as well just make him Skynet and bring in a Terminator. Yeah, so not a Terminator Tom Cruise. Andrew, I asked you to come up with five things that you wanted to see in the movie before you went and saw the movie. Let's go from the smallest thing we wanted to the biggest thing we wanted. What was your number five? The smallest thing I wanted, because I knew it was going to be AI, I wanted the action, when there was action, to be grittier and not as cartoony as the MI movies can be. And I feel like I got that with the desert sequence, because like people are getting shot, it's bloody for a PG-13. So I, I got it, but then you also have the fiat scene, which was cool, but some of the scenes had almost, it seemed like, more comedy than the other films have had. Definitely. But I would say you got it in the scenes where Ethan is fighting hand-to-hand. I think it's the angriest I've ever seen him. Yeah, yeah. He's beating the crap out of people. I'm expecting him to pick up a brick at a certain point and smashing dudes' faces with it, you know? <laughs> he almost brained Mantis. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And we gotta hand it to Christopher McQuarrie's writing. He casts the French actress, Palm Clementif. What are we gonna call her? I know, let's just call her Paris. <laughs> <laughs> but no one called her Paris. <laughs> the bottom of my list... I wanted a second IMF team not tied to Ethan. Mm. I feel like I basically got it with the CIA team sent to hunt Ethan, but they weren't technically IMF. Yeah. I feel so bad for that actor. He looks tired constantly. (laughs) The guy in uh, Boardwalk Empire? Shea Wiggum. He looks so tired all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I never knew the guy's name, but he's one of those that guy actors. Yeah, he's definitely a that guy. He's always that guy who looks like he's over it. (laughs) He does it well. Like He does it really well. I could see that cynicism making sense for his character in this. What was your number four? I wanted to see Ethan get pretty seriously injured. Oh, I don't think you got it in this. I did not know. I wanted one of Ethan's IMF teammates to die. Preferably, uh, wasn't, but I got it. I was so happy. It was an emotional scene, but after six movies, to not have anybody die since the first one, I'm not really believing in the stakes. Like you said, Andrew, it gets a little cartoony, and I think part of the cartoon is the fact that nobody seems to die. I loved it. I was so glad. Well, I mean, that transitions into my number three, because my number three was a consequential death. And boy, did we get one. (laughs) In a similar vein, my number three was, I wanted Ethan to talk about retiring from field work. Maybe running off with I didn't get it, but it's connected to number four. (laughs) (laughs) Your number two. Cliffhanger ending which I don't feel like I got a true cliffhanger. We have like a classic kind of sequel resolution where we know what's coming or what has to come next, but it's not like an edge-of-your-seat cliffhanger like I'll say Across the Spider-Verse did. Oh, 
I have my issues with that one, but that's not this podcast. Oh, oh, really? Okay, well, um... <laughs> See, that's the dynamic I want between you guys. <laughs> if we stick with the movie we got, where would you have ended the movie sooner to get your cliffhanger ending? That's the thing. I don't know how I would rewrite it to get the cliffhanger ending that I wanted out of the material that we have. Like, it was a satisfying ending. It was just, you know, I was kind of hoping it would be more of a stinger. Like, it's just, I can't wait for the next one more of an anticipation but this one i'm kind of like okay cool i can decompress and wait for the next one which is probably better than the cliffhanger but you know i didn't get it i wanted like a best of both worlds part one type cliffhanger my number two was i didn't want to be a traitor he's an antagonist but he should never be a turncoat and i think they were trying to make him look like a scumbag when he's on the train toward the end I breathed a sigh of relief when it turned out that wasn't the case. I was like, oh, thank God. We still have another movie, though. Yeah, we do. But the way he does the voiceover at the end, I feel like he's on Ethan's side now. So don't don't take that away from me. (laughs) (laughs) What was your biggest thing that if they didn't have this, it would actually hurt your enjoyment of the film the most? It's going to be kind of a weird one, but it's... You wanted a sex scene? No. It was based on something that you've mentioned to me before, Frank, when we did the Marathon Impossible. Ooh. It wouldn't have ruined the movie for me, but I would have had a sense of almost anxiety throughout the film that it would be shitty because I wanted that title sequence that you get in all of the good Mission Impossibles. (laughs) With just the music, the scenes, the little quick cuts of the movie, because you were... You were right on the money. The bad ones don't have it, and all the good ones do. And so that happened in this movie. It seemed like it happened like 20 minutes into the film or more. And so like I was kind of on the edge of my seat for a bit. Like, oh my god, are we not going to get it? And then we got it, and I was fine. (laughs) So John, he doesn't have much of a history with Mission Impossible. So he watched all the ones he had missed leading up to the seventh one. John, what are your two or three least favorite out of the mission movies? Um, uh, you said three. Three. I didn't like three. Obviously, no one seemed to like two. Um, okay, for my purposes, you can stop there. All right. <laughs> so, John, like Andrew said, I noticed when we rewatched them together that two and three don't do the classic little mini trailer credit sequence. And that's when I realized quite scientifically that that must be it (laughs) those guys are like we don't need to do a traditional sequence we're better than that we're doing something different and then they flamed out both times Um, yeah that felt like it my number one was i didn't want the ai to have a conversation with hunt verbal or text i wanted the entity to have no personality for it to only be a tool And they didn't do that, and I was upset about that. Mm. Because then it gets too much into sci-fi territory. Then the movie gets too big, and then the plot holes become too big, as opposed to if they just said, it's an app on a phone. It's only as good or bad as whoever's using it. But when you go, oh no, it's thinking, it's talking, it's antagonizing. Like, oh man, 
Now, now you've raised a lot of questions. I don't know. I like that element of the AI, though, that it was its own sentient thing. That's what makes it scary. If it was just a tool in someone's hand, yeah, it is only as threatening as the person who has it. So if Gabriel had it, sure. He worships this thing like it's a god. That's scarier, to me at least. For me, the high point of the movie was the rave scene through the character death scene. I think that was like the best section of the movie. It led him down the wrong path and then just said, okay, stop, you know, you're done. And then it's just a trap for him. I love that whole two-part sequence as well. But in spite of some of the AI characterization. So Andrew, Tom Cruise, he's older in this than Roger Moore was in A View to a Kill. How well do you feel they handled Ethan Hunt's age? Well, in the sense that I feel like they didn't really mention it. It's brought up a couple times, like, oh, you have a history, but it's not like how age played a role in Skyfall. It's more like how age played a role in just liking it's Top Gun Maverick again. Yeah, Ethan's age was, to me at least, largely ignored. I feel like this is a movie that if Tom Cruise was 30 years younger, they could have just done the same thing. I'm so glad they didn't pull a lethal weapon and have him go, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that. And they could have, but they didn't. I don't want them to acknowledge it because then it it would make them less timeless, I think. Maybe that's just me. I thought for action movie terms, at least, they kept his antics within sight of believability. And that's something that helps me accept the age factor that Moore's Bond in his later movies didn't. And John, tell me if I'm wrong. So Ethan... In Dead Reckoning, part one, he's getting into fistfights that take some time to resolve. And that's the difference between his aged character and Moore's aged Bond. Wasn't Roger Moore in his later movies still laying dudes out with one or two punches? (laughs) He was. And slow punches, too, because he's an old man. (laughs) That's a big difference between them, how you can do it with a smidge more believability. Mm Mm-hmm. Andrew, did it bug you that Ethan went rogue again? No, he goes rogue every movie. (laughs) What if it was literally called Rogue Nation, and you thought it was just going to be Tom Cruise turning his own island nation? When they're talking about it again, it's like, he's going to do his own thing. It's like, of course he's going to do his own thing. That's what he always does in every damn movie. (laughs) They should have named it the Agreeable Mission Force if they didn't want him to go rogue. Oh, yeah, that's the only fix they need. The secretary just changes the force's name to <laughs> completely sanctioned mission force. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why is Kidders complaining every time? It's just like, why did you go rogue? This mission was supposed to be impossible. Was he meant to fail? Like, we had a plan for you to fail. Why didn't you follow the plan? As much as John Woo's contribution is maligned with the second movie, that's the only one where Ethan never gets blacklisted by his own agency. From that, you'd think Ethan Hunt is the rebel and James Bond is the stable one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And when you mentioned him going rogue, it did pop into my head. Like, wait a minute. He just played the straight mission through number two. Of all the movies, he doesn't do his own thing. It's like arguably the worst one. Actually, not arguably. It's the worst one. It is. As much as I want to hate on J.J., And we will keep kidding on JJ. Don't stop. Don't ever stop. (laughs) (laughs) 
Frank, are you even wearing pants right now? Uh, technically, no, because it's hot as balls. <laughs> <laughs> Ye poor souls, it's below 60 now here. Shut up, stop your bragging. Sun's going down. Take away the temperature, what does San Francisco really have? Mountains of homeless people poop. 